You're listening to the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega Podcast on the Odyssey Robots Radio Network. What's up, all? It is I, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, coming to you with episode 22 of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. Wow, that's 22 installments now of yours truly meandering on about nothing uh, as we continue this conversation or monologue, as it were. For today's installment, I am sitting down to record this at uh, precisely 1.05 p.m. on a Tuesday. You will probably be hearing this uh, tomorrow, Wednesday, or whenever you happen to listen to it, but tomorrow at the earliest. It is a particularly gloomy November day here in Napa, California, a gloom that I very much appreciate. Uh, Feel bad for local business types as most... um, Business and commerce nowadays is taking place outdoors, and this weather isn't particularly conducive to it, but just on a personal level, I am a fan of the Misty Moor. It reminds me of, uh, I feel like I'm in some uh, LARP situation, uh, live-action role-playing. I'm about to go uh, meet my party down at the Green Dragon Inn, and then we're going to go kill some kobolds, and the the, the mist will rain down on us as we... uh, Traverse with our backpacks equipped with lanterns and tinderboxes, or something along those lines. In any case, um, I uh, apologize for some of the background clanging and banging you may be hearing. One side effect of this weather is that um, while Ms. 1 and 2, my uh, two children, um, leave the home these days for school um, for a couple hours on Mondays and Tuesdays, Due to the weather today, I had them uh, just stay home and do their classes remotely because uh, there's nowhere really for them to wait for me to pick them up in the pouring rain. And so I figured it'd be more humane to just keep things in the home for today. But then that means that they are underfoot as I attempt to record this. But we'll try to get through it as best we can. As always, just a top-notch, high-fidelity, professional audio experience here at the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. In the meantime, as I'm recording this, I am sitting here enjoying a uh, cup of uh, green tea. Um, Just about to eat some lunch, but I'm actually not going to disclose what that lunch consists of for fear of uh, spoiling future segments of uh, what did Gino Vega have for lunch on the Stuck at Home show, the flagship show of the IC Robots uh, radio network. For those of you who have not heard, I do occasionally call into that show for a segment in which I disclose what I have recently uh, consumed for lunch. But we're going to keep what I'm having today spoiler-free. I will mention, humorously enough, our um, Napa County here where we live, um, it's been in the news uh, the last couple days because... um, there is an incredibly high maintenance, overhyped, at least in my estimation, restaurant in nearby, I believe it's in Yauntville, California, uh, one of the small burgs here in Napa County, a restaurant by the name of French Laundry. 
And uh, it's this kind of place that I think you have to make, you know, the average person has to make reservations long in advance to get there. And it's incredibly expensive. And it's, you know, this bucket list dining experience. But um, the governor of California got in trouble for um, dining there with a large group at a time where the state is putting out uh, guidelines about not hanging out in large groups. So, of course, this was uh, much ado for people who are not a fan of either the governor or regulations of any kind or health policies or whatsoever. It was, you know, an example of, well, see, he didn't do it, so we shouldn't have to do it. And it was like the dumbest uh, move possible, I feel like, on his part for (laughs) just like uh, giving uh, ammo to uh, people who already want to try to um, point out that you are a hypocritical elite and then to go out and just flagrantly um, behave in that way. But um, that's neither here nor there. The p- point that I wanted to make is I was thinking about eating lunch and then it caused me to think about French laundry. And it's so weird to me um, how people... Uh, I understand everything in life as far as consumer experiences, things... Items, experiences, events uh, that we consume. There, just by nature, there's a certain amount to which the person consuming these things um, needs to be, uh, in carny terms, a mark, like a, a a rube. You're you're being duped into buying these things, even if you're conscious of it, because just the the fact of the matter is. Nothing is ever really um, that great, I guess. Um, I, I remember one time years ago, I was somewhere uh, drinking an Orangina soda. And uh, a person came up to me and said, uh, you do know that uh, all Orangina is is uh, pe- basically Pellegrino water and orange flavoring. And it's like, yeah. And... You can kind of reduce anything uh, in that way. I mean, everything broken down to its component parts is not really that interesting or exciting or engaging um, unless we kind of allow ourselves to be excited or engaged. Um, And that's why we sign on to uh, experiences, why we choose to buy certain things, to give our time to certain things, because we've decided... We're willing to to make that deal. We're willing to accept that uh, this thing that we're about to consume, where if you really thought about it, uh, really broke it down, uh, you know, that, that G.I. Joe toy is just uh, plastic that's been put through a mold. Well, that's true. But we, we have uh, entered a social contract where we've decided to be excited by certain aspects of it or certain things that it, it represents to us. Um, so obviously, it's simply human nature to... Mark out for certain things um, to a degree, uh, marking out being a carny or professional wrestling term, basically for getting excited about something. Um, and it's just completely edgelord and meaningless to spend your time uh, being the proverbial, don't you know the Orangina is just Pellegrino water and orange flavoring guy or gal or what have you. Um, but I do wonder at what point, um, does marking out become absurd? And I feel like a place like French Laundry is a case in point where, I mean, when does it end? Like, I understand 
the allure of uh, fine dining, high-end dining. I've, I've been known to do it from time to time myself, but don't get it twisted. I'm also down to go hang out at McDonald's. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm neither here nor there. I have a foot in both of those worlds. But um, at a certain point, you know, high-end fancy food is high-end fancy food, and you keep, no matter how much perfume you keep on top of it, um, does the pig really change? And uh, it just seems like there's a point when marking out goes past its healthy bounds and enters a very strange place. And it's a strange place that um, just motivates people to need more and more and more all the time to the point where the human being, the person who's defined by, you know, more real, tangible things like the relationships to other people, ceases to exist, and all that's left is a mark, a mark that just wants and needs. So like, I mean, you know, I'm sure a $50 bottle of wine is good. Is a $250 one that much better? I mean, at a certain point, who cares? I don't know. I guess people do. Plenty of people do. (laughs) Oh, it just seems weird to me. I don't know. As always, to each their own when it comes to personal preferences, but I just feel like you could ratchet down the drama in your life uh, quite a lot if you just tamp down the marking out mm, just a little bit. Long-term listeners of the show will know that I, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega, have been a lifelong fan of the professional wrestling genre. Medium-term listeners may know, uh, due to some news I dropped a few episodes back, that I have recently uh, gone on hiatus from actively watching pro wrestling. I was at a point where I previously spent probably, God, um, I would say most of my uh, leisure time during any given week watching endless hours of professional wrestling programming, I am down to zero for the last few months. So what have I been doing with all of this newly freed up leisure time? Well, I've been catching up on some episodic uh, television viewing that I have deferred over the last many years. We're going to talk about two of my current um, viewing projects on today's episode. And we're going to start off on one that I just kicked off this last weekend. Something that has been many years in the making, in the waiting. Um, Something that through doing this show, through listening to the Stuck at Home show by IC Robots, the flagship show here on the network, um, and just through current uh, world events, I realized that I owed myself to do. And that is watching the entirety of the Star Trek franchise in the order that it aired, starting with the original series, And God only knows how far I will get with this project or how long it will take because that is a lot of content to wade through. But uh, we're going to give it the old college try. And as I said, I started off on Sunday night. I watched uh, episode one, season one of the original series. An episode which I'm sure I saw at some point over the years, but part of the reason why I'm doing this in such a rigid air date based way is... Star Trek is something that I've seen a lot of in disjointed bits and pieces um, over the decades, um, but never in a concerted way where I was able to um, just really see it unfold uh, as it happened, as it uh, was intended. And so my thing with Star Trek is that I've always been Star Trek adjacent, Star Trek friendly, 
when I was a kid, uh, I watched most of the Next Generation series as it uh, aired in real time, as they say. Uh, throwback to, to our governor of California that I mentioned earlier. I think he's a, he's a proponent of the term real time. But <laughs> yeah, I watched a lot of Next Generation. I watched uh, episodes of the original series here and there over the years. I watched Deep Space Nine, and that's about as far as I got. Watched the movies, more or less. Um, I owned the Star Trek role-playing game uh, as a youth. Um, I read Star Trek novels, um, read Star Trek comics, Red Star Trek, uh, you know, those kind of like um, technical manuals they used to put out where it'd be like, you know, the, the engineer's guide to the to the USS Enterprise. Um, I used to have a red sweater that I would put on and act like it was, you know, a Star Trek uniform, jersey, whatever they call those tops. Uh, I would make a phaser and a communicator out of my bristle block. So I was pretty into Star Trek, but I was never like a full bore Trekkie. Um, it was just something that was kind of there out in the ether um, that I liked, but it wasn't obsessive about. Um, but uh, as I got older, I kind of turned on Star Trek because when I was younger, when I was like in my 20s and stuff, before I, you know, I was just a young fool, young punk, didn't really understand the ways of the world, kind of turned on Star Trek because I found it to be uh, too stuffy. Like I found, uh, you know, why do I want to watch this show about these uh, establishment people going around in space trying to to uh, settle disputes and uh, uh, enforce laws? You know, I, I, I just want to tear it all down, man. Yeah, I, I want to go watch Cyberpunk or something. I don't know, not that there was something called Cyberpunk, but, you know, I, was, I, I, I shifted from sci-fi in the, in the realm of um, Star Trek's uh, hopeful future public policy and space uh, vein and more into uh, edgy, surly, Blade Runner-y type stuff, which is great too. But uh, um, as I've gotten older, as times have changed, um, as we live in more of a kind of dystopian, uh, know-nothingism, disinformation and conspiracy theory-fueled environment, there's something refreshing about watching the members of Starfleet trying to spread the gospel of scientific, rational civilization throughout the galaxy. And it's interesting, watching that first episode um, from a 2020 vantage point, um, it was kind of mind-blowing to me how ahead of its time the original show was, um, which I guess is a surprise to no one because that's kind of the whole gimmick of... uh, original Star Trek, but, you know, it'd been a long time since I'd watched any of the TOS, the original series uh, episodes, and particularly just with things that are happening uh, in the world today, as they say, it was just very interesting to see what Roddenberry and company were doing way back in 1966. Uh, One of the first uh, segments of that first episode, The Man Trap, that's the one I started with. I'm aware that there's a pilot uh, that predates the man trap, but I, I set that aside because I'll just watch those scenes when they show up in the menagerie. But uh, yeah, I um, one of the initial scenes in that episode is um, uh, Dr. McCoy um, having to um, berate a uh, kind of conspiracy theorist fringe individual, uh, a archaeologist that's gone off the rails, um, having to berate him into following, complying with... Uh, <laughs> 
Federation health regulations. So I thought that was pretty funny that we're still <laughs> how far we've come and however the heck many decades that's been uh, since that first episode. But the other thing that's crazy about that show is um, just the wild um, uh, trigger warning diversity of the cast. I know this is this will upset some out there possibly. Hopefully not people that listen to this, but you never know. Uh, but just. It's wild that in 1966, you had this show that had, you know, there's like an Asian guy in it that's not like some, you know, karate dude. He's just like a normal guy. Um, you have, uh, you know, a black woman who's like a normal person, <laughs> who's like a main character on the show. Um, it's just, it was just interesting because it's like you don't even necessarily see that now on TV. But here, you know. Roddenberry was putting forward this uh, future utopian vision of a pluralistic, a strong pluralistic society, which uh, we will probably never realize. We will just continue to have a crazed, muddled pluralistic society, but it's fun to watch. Um, anyway, yeah, so I just got through that first episode. I've got a lot to go. I think there's something in the range of like 700 episodes of Star Trek content when all is said and done. So We'll see how it goes, but I will continue to be back with Trek updates as they happen um, and as I chronicle my um, kind of midlife turn into becoming a Trekkie. I don't know if we'll really go that far, but <laughs> my midlife turn into finally accepting that uh, Trek meant more to me than I realized it did in my life growing up. <laughs> In other news, let's talk about a show that I recently uh, finished viewing in its entirety. And that show is HBO's excellent The Watchmen series. Uh, I guess I'm going to have to throw a spoiler alert out here, because even though I'm not going to talk um, in depth about anything really plot related, um, you never know. I think that show's been around for a while anyway. I was pretty late to the party. Um, but with all hey, with all this free leisure time now, it's, uh, I'm, I'm making all kinds of strides in uh, catching up on uh, pop culture, television, art. Um, so yeah, The Watchmen. I you know I obviously like many of my age and ilk, um, that original DC Comics miniseries was like a bible to me as a young person. It. Uh, came on the scene and was getting all of its praise and accolades really at the height of my own getting into comic fandom. Um, and so it was a, it was a, a towering work, a staggering work of, uh, of colossal genius or whatever, whatever that novel is called. But uh, yeah, it, it loomed large and continues to loom large on the comic scene. Now, in part because of its stature and in part because of its format, I have generally been very disinterested in Watchmen sequel and spinoff uh, content, simply because uh, the Watchmen miniseries, the original miniseries, really felt like a singular work of art. Like it wasn't really a comic book comic book. It wasn't, you know, it, it just it doesn't seem like the appropriate reaction after reading the Watchmen is uh, clamoring to read the further episodic adventures of Rorschach. That was, it wasn't an episodic superhero comic book. It was a graphic novel using comic book characters as a vehicle, as a metaphor, what have you. 
Um, so I always thought things like the the original uh, live action film. No, no interest in that. Never saw it. Um, I know that there's been like DC sequels, comic sequels. Um, literally, I think if I understand correctly, the proverbial like further adventures of Rorschach. Not really interested in that. Um, you know, also dampened by the fact that Alan Moore, the uh, co-creator of the series, was so is so down on the idea of spinoffs. Though Alan Moore. My my sympathy for him has waned over the years as he just kind of, in a way, devolves into being just a real rigid sort of joy-kill boomer. Like, I mean, I get it that he doesn't want people using characters he created and that he feels that, you know, he had to create them for this factory DC and that it's unfair that they continue to use them and turn them into just mass market uh, content. But at the same time, it's like, man, that's, just, that's the way of the world. Time to move on. But... <laughs> The HBO series, there was so much positive buzz around it, and it sounded like it was just something decidedly different than what um, had turned me off about other Watchmen spinoffs that I decided to give it a go. And folks, this was just one of the most fantastic television series I've watched in as long as I can remember. Just loved every minute of this show. Gripping, riveting, creative, uh, surprising, engaging, uh, thought-provoking. Any other adjective you can think of to put on one of those, uh, you know, little review snippets they put on on movie posters or whatever. But I thoroughly enjoyed this show. Uh, But this show made me think and reflect more than any creative work I've engaged with in quite some time. And I think part of it is because I saw it through a lens that is particularly personal and important to me. And I don't know if everyone would see the show this way, but I'll, I'll tell you how, how it felt to me. It felt to me that the HBO Watchmen show was a show about family. What it means to be in a family, what it means to have a family, what families mean in general. Um, And family is something that is extremely important to me. It's probably the biggest part of my life. My own immediate nuclear family unit, uh, we're pretty insular. We spend a lot of time together. It's not that we don't have, you know, friends outside and community attachments and whatnot, but You know, my wife and I decided very early on um, that we wanted to create a family situation that neither of us really uh, experienced per se growing up. Not that we had like the worst childhoods or anything, but just we had certain ideas about what we wanted our family to be like. So family life has really been the primary uh, focus um, of our life together, with some notable exceptions. Um which we've remedied over the years. But anyway, in this show, The Watchmen, you are basically presented with three different models of family. You are presented with one case, which is family and name only. Family of pure biology, biological connection, uh, where you have one character, that is the child of another character, 
um, that was the result of, um, spoiler alert, a uh, mother, biological mother, impregnating herself with the genetic material of the father, um, thereby creating a child. That's one version of family, the strictly biological. Two male and female biological entities create a child. So in a sense, that's a family. You have another family presented on the show that is the case of a purely intentional family. It's uh, two people that came to be, came together by choice, created a very um, uh, purposely chosen relationship with each other, and then ended up with uh, children by way of adoption. So not their biological children, but children that these people chose and children that these people dedicated uh, themselves to raising. So that's the second type of family, the intentional family. Then you are presented with a third family on the show, which are similar to the first example, biological family, a family in name only, um, a grandfather who um, encounters his unknown to him granddaughter, unknown in the fact that they didn't have a relationship until uh, meeting on the show, when the grandfather is a very senior individual and the granddaughter is a grown woman. Um, and this third family, again, a only family in the sense that they're biologically, biologically related, yet these two come together and through intention by the end of the series are attempting to um, create true family with one another. And so as should be surprised to no one, the first family I mentioned, the one that is simply related through biology, that relationship ends in disaster on the show. Uh, spoiler alert, uh, father kills child. Um, the third example, the grandfather and the granddaughter end the series with hope and possibility, the hope and possibility of actually uh, resurrecting a real relationship out of uh, nothingness and out of all the loss that led to them to where they are today. And the middle example is pretty much the utopian family um, throughout the course of the series until um, it gets to the point where, spoiler alert, uh, the uh, husband in the family meets his demise. And as he um, has told his wife previously on the show, all relationships end in tragedy. And I think, in fact, I know that was the line of the show that kind of hit me the most personally, because... Much like my own family, um, his family in the show, and I'll just say, spoiler, spoiler, spoiler alert, I'm talking about Dr. Manhattan um, or Cal, as he was known on the show for most of the of the time when you're, you don't realize he's Dr. Manhattan, and his wife, Angela, that, that this is the family I'm talking about, and they're adopted children. Um, again, m much like my own family, this was a family that was created um, to try to make up for uh, what the family members, particularly the parents, um, had an experience in their own life, had an experience in their own childhood. They wanted to, rather than just kind of stumble along and just have another kind of half-hearted family and name only, they wanted to create a family 
of intention, where uh, they were all there for a reason. They were all there for their relationship with one another, for the fact that they cared for one another. Um, but as the show made painfully clear with that line about all relationships ending in tragedy, uh, it made me think about, you know, my own family. Someday uh, I will cease to exist or Ms. S will cease to exist. There's really no happy ending. <laughs> no matter what, uh, you know, this thing that we have, this unit that exists now, this harmonious unit that we've put all this work into creating and maintaining will end in tragic nature. It's a it's simple fact of life, unassailable fact. Um, so that was kind of depressing. I was a little bit depressed after watching the show and thinking about that for a while. I'm not going to lie. But there was another point made on the show. And of course, it was made through um, the metaphor of, of unearthly superpowers, the fact that Dr. Manhattan exists in every point in time simultaneously. So while he's existing at the end of their familial relationship, he's also existing before it began, when it began, in the middle, here, there, everywhere. But I realize that's kind of true for all of us because, you know, of course, um, family life, um, particularly particularly for, um, in most cases, the, the parents, um, will end with loss, will end with uh, one losing the other. Um, and then the survivor and the surviving children, et cetera, having to pick up the pieces. But is that the relationship in its entirety? Of course not. There's the entire family history. And we're kind of in all places at once. So when a loved one passes, of course, that that time is going to be sad, is going to be upsetting. But you can still put yourself back in that kind of historical continuum that led to that place. And you really are in all those places at one time. So I found that to be kind of hopeful. You know, the older that I get and the more memories I have and the more history I have, the more personal history I have, sometimes over the last few years, that's kind of freaked me out. But thinking about it this way, I just realize all that time simply creates more fullness, more places to be on that uh, all places at once timeline of our own personal histories until that time comes when time is no more. Everyone, thanks for tuning in to this 22nd episode of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega show on the IC Robots Radio Network. We will be back next week, and I'm going to be trying out something new, a new format, not for the show for all time going forward, but just uh, I'm going to intersperse a few of these episodes here and there. Next week, we are going to do a special Mortifying Tales of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast, where I um, chronicle some vignettes, of various times in my life where I have just done completely stupefying, mortifying, horrifying things. And we can all have a little laugh at it looking back. So we'll be back next week with some of those mortifying tales. In the meantime, continue to enjoy all the content here on the IC Robots Radio Network. Talk to you soon. It's Mr. Sensational Gino Vega signing off. Been a real close family, but lately some of my kin folks 
have disowned a few others and me. I guess it's because I kind of changed my direction. Lord, I guess I went. 